Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas, my new show uh, that brings a uniquely rational perspective to many of the important issues facing our society today. Today's guest, I'm excited to say, is Professor Todd Zawicki, professor of law at the George Mason University Antonin Scalia School of Law. Todd and I have an enlightening uh, conversation about lessons from the pandemic, particularly the civil liberties, uh, the Constitution, public health emergencies, and where do we go from here. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned. Today's guest is uh, Professor Todd Zwicky. Todd is the George Mason University Foundation Professor of Law at George Mason University Antonin Scalia School of Law. He has so many accomplishments, I'm going to have to cut them short to give the real intro, but he's a research fellow of law and economics, uh, center, uh, former executive director of the GMU Law and Economic Center, actually. In 2021, he was the chair of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau Task Force on Federal Financial Law for Consumers. He teaches in the areas of bankruptcy, contracts, commercial law, law and economics, and public choice and the law. In his uh, earlier days, he clerked for Judge Jerry Smith of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and received his J.D. degree from the University of Virginia, where he was executive editor of the Virginia Tax Review and the John Olin Scholar in Law and Economics. Professor Zwicky all received, also received his undergraduate education degree in economics from Clemson and an A.B. cum laude with high honors from Dartmouth College. He is the author of more than 130 articles in leading law reviews and peer-reviewed economics journals, one of the most downloaded law authors in the entire social science research network all time, has testified before Congress, is a frequent commentator in all the major uh, media issues, both in the United States and overseas, and it's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Todd Zawicki. Welcome, Todd. Thank you so much. Thanks, for Scott. Doing Great this. to talk with you. There's so many things uh, you know we could talk about, and uh, so many important things happening in our country. Uh, I'd like to explore some specific topics uh, today about what was exposed during the pandemic, how it relates to the law, our Constitution, uh, and sort of where do we go from here. And uh, to begin that conversation, which is a very complicated one, of course, uh, I think it's worth refreshing the audience on your personal story, sort of as a lead in. How did you get involved in the pandemic in a very personal way? Well, it uh, goes back to the very beginning. Uh, ironically, Scott, uh, the first time I met you was a couple of years ago in New York at that conference that uh, Mario Rizzo yes. and Richard Epstein organized. Um, before the world went crazy. This was in February, 2020. Um, and um, after that conference, I traveled home on the Acela and had to wait for a few hours in Penn Station for a train. Um, and in retrospect, uh, COVID was probably about the sixth most dangerous thing I was exposed to waiting a couple hours in Penn Station. <laughs> uh, but sure enough, about uh, five days after I got home the first week of March, I started having these very bizarre symptoms uh, of, uh, of some illness I'd never had before. Um, uh, and at the time, I did not have the classic COVID symptoms. So I couldn't get a uh, COVID test. Um, but sure enough, 
it turned yeah. out it was COVID. A few weeks later, you know, they added those symptoms. And so it came around that fall. Um, and so I thought, okay, I've done it. I've got it over with. And of course, at that time, everybody, including most prominently Anthony Fauci, was saying, well, if you've had COVID and recovered, then you don't need to worry about it anymore. So I basically watched the entire pandemic as right. a spectator starting off because I got it. I was an early adopter, right? So the fall came around. We wanted to reopen the law school. I was in my 50s, but I said, well, I think I've had COVID, so I'll volunteer to teach in person. So I stepped up. I went and uh, uh, donated blood, got an antibodies test as part of that, and came back positive. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll teach in person, right? So I taught the entire school year in person um, uh, while you know my younger colleagues were off at their beach houses uh, being safe. Like, all right, I'll step up. I've had COVID. I don't have anything to worry about. Um, went the, did the whole school year teaching in person. And then the summer came around and the president of the university started making noises. We're going to have a COVID vaccine mandate. And so I sent a message to the people who were in charge of it at George Mason. I said, well, obviously you're going to exempt people who um, have already had COVID and recovered. And they wrote back with some garbage about uh, natural immunity doesn't exist and, you know, all that kind of kind of all that crap. So I, it was pretty clear to me where this is going. So the next time I contacted them, I uh, had my lawyers at the new Civil Liberties Alliance contact uh, the university and, and say, I think you should recognize natural immunity with a antibodies test. And I provided a copy of my antibodies um, uh, test uh, at the time to show how high my antibodies level was. I had a medical opinion from my doctor, an immunologist uh, who had Norchasm, who said my antibodies levels were comparable to somebody who'd just been vaccinated. And I said... I think you should recognize natural immunity. And instead of responding to me, they just issued their um, their uh, their their mandate. Uh, and so I sued them. Um, and um, within a few weeks, they ended up granting me an exemption, uh, not on natural immunity grounds, but on other grounds. And I'm, I'm grateful they offered me an exemption. Uh, but my lawsuit went away. But, of course, that was the period by that time, then by that uh, July, August, September 2021, where these things were going, uh, were going wild, um, and um, so I brought my I brought my suit partly for myself, but as we could talk about, partly because I was trying to provide a template for other people to challenge these mandates because I saw the tyranny and I saw the anti scientific nature and I saw where this was all going uh, with as uh, sort of fascistic and dismissive of me as the people were at the university and it's a state university. And so I had, you know, I made constitutional claims, but the university just didn't want to right. hear anything about it. So. Right. I mean, I think you're, you know, there's so many things to unpack in there. We, we won't go through all of them, but uh, it's not just tyranny in all of these issues. It's also a simple denial of fundamental science of fundamental biology that we've known for thousands of years that was proven in every you know viral similar viral infection that was common sense biology and as i like to say it's not biology that's related to a phd <laughs> or a postdoc or an md or even a college student it's biology you learn as a senior in right. high school uh and this was you know inexplicably denied although many theories abound about it i i think that that will be one of the great unanswered really questions why did even the most fundamental biology get thrown to the wayside in this but i think i'd like to go into this whole idea of sort of the legal basis of things and where the 
where the questions arise from, particularly as we are watching uh, the Biden administration sort of prematurely, if nothing else, uh, sort of indicate acceptance of a World Health Organization pandemic agreement that is in theory legally binding that uh, in advance, uh, but basically allowing the World Health Organization, a completely untrustworthy by their behavior organization, define the most fundamental point of all in this, what is a public health emergency? And we've had three years of this now in our country. And so this is a very complicated, uh, really, question because I think it's still ambiguous. But what is the legal definition and the legal constraints and the legal authority for even saying that? Because, of course, public health emergency is the basis for doing all these actions. Yeah, and the and so there there's two different there's a there's a variety of different levels um, and things going on with respect to legal authority. So, if you recall, the um, Biden administration vaccine mandate went up to the Supreme Court, um, and this federal law. That turned on things like whether or not OSHA had authority to uh, to impose a vaccine uh, mandate through employers, uh, and Supreme Court said no to that. And then they said, does the federal government have authority to impose a vaccine mandate on medical providers that accept uh, that are involved in uh, CMS? And the court said yes to that. Yeah, right. Uh, and so that's one package of, uh, of 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 of, of things with respect to legal uh, authority with respect to vaccine mandates. On the state level, states have what are technically called the police power, um, which is the ability, which involves the ability to impose vaccine or uh, vaccine and or immunity requirements more precisely um, as basically a mandate is a requirement for public services uh, uh, and that sort of thing. So for example, one of the great misnomers of all this is everybody says schools have vaccine mandates. Schools do not have vaccine mandates. K-12 schools do not have vaccine mandates. They have immunity mandates, uh, which means if you look yeah. at Virginia law, for example, you can either get vaccinated against measles, mumps, et cetera, or you can demonstrate that you have immunity by an antibodies test, Right. Uh, and um, and so they've always recognized natural immunity. This time they just, as you said, decided not to recognize natural immunity. They just proclaimed that a vaccine was the only thing that uh, that, that 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 would qualify. Um, and so you've got those questions of state law, which is how they were trying to reach me. Then you've got this whole other question that you're talking about, which are treaties, um, and treaties uh, signed with international organizations that are properly ratified. By the Senate are binding law in the United States, but now what we've ended up with is, is this gray area that they've been doing a lot of the climate change and various other things through, where the government enters into these agreements that are not formally ratified as treaties, but then in some way they try to treat them as law or or, or something like that, right? Just yet another example of executive non-law might making that they're calling law. Um, and uh, basically forcing people to comply with. Right. And so who defines the term public health emergency, or is that not even really a clearly defined um, term? It's not really a very uh, clearly defined term. Um, and partly it's because, you know, one of the things that's very been very interesting from all this stuff from a legal perspective is that um, that 
these things don't happen all the time, right? And so, for example, the law involving the police power, or as I'm saying, the state's ability to impose vaccine or immunity mandates, that law goes back to the beginning of the 20th century um, and hasn't really been an issue for over a century. The whole world has changed uh, in the in, in the past century, right? Right. All legal doctrine is uh, is changed, and people haven't really processed that, including courts. And so, these questions like public health emergencies, um, it's pretty clear that what they would have in mind, whether on the state or the federal level, would be discrete sorts of uh, sort sorts of uh, sorts of things. You know, maybe even like a nine eleven attack uh, or or something like that, right? But to, um, you know, to basically respond to um, some sort of crisis. But to think that nobody ever contemplated that public health emergency could last two or three years, right? And just be continually right. renewed without any uh, legislative uh, uh, review, congressional review, uh, anything like that. And so what we and so one of the things that we're seeing now because of the way the government abuses its powers, especially this administration, is we're running into this problem where we create discretion um, in the executive to respond to public needs. And you can provide very plausible scenarios where that might be might be the case, right? But what's happening now is that's kind of been based on the fact that they won't abuse it. Um, and now what we see are public officials just abusing it, using it as a blank check to do all kinds of things, including apparently billions of dollars of student loan relief uh, being justified by public health emergency, right. um, eviction moratoriums, all these sorts of things that, uh, that that they're doing. And so they're putting us in a very difficult position where that where where when you can't trust the government to use these emergency powers responsibly, um, you are then will be required to define them very carefully to place clear constraints on what the government can do under these sorts of uh, sorts of things because they just can't be trusted with the open-ended grant of authority. So to, to answer your question, public health emergency has always been very vaguely defined because we feel like that needs to be done to, to meet whatever the unanticipated exigencies of the moment are, but they've abused it so badly, I think we're going to have to go back and we're going to have to tie their hands just because we literally obviously just can't trust them anymore. But is that really happening at this point? In other words, are there significant calls in the court, in the in the Department of Justice, or in the in the court of even public opinion to define? I mean, but from and the reason uh, public health emergency, and the reason this really comes to mind for me as a layman uh, with regard to law is that you know the term emergency means typically a temporary, <laughs> unexpected event, and uh, after. After a year, two years, there's nothing unexpected about what's happening. And so that is just not even doesn't even pass a common sense test, which actually I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but is one of the ways that uh, decisions are rendered. What is it to a reasonable right. man? Uh, and uh, so that's sort of uh, worrisome to me because I wonder if we've lost all uh, all sort of that level of assessment. It's not even reasonable. Right. Uh, to say that an emergency could last yeah, for three right. years. And, what it, and now the administration has announced what's that the emergency, that the COVID will be done on what, May 12th or something? They've announced a fixed date right. in which the you're, emergency... You're prospectively ending it months later. I mean, the whole thing, it just, it, it's simply, uh, 
it's beyond uh, sort of a uh, Alice in Wonderland right. discussion. You know, one of the other things I wanted to touch upon here for the audience, because it's been my, I feel this is one of the fundamental failures of leadership uh, in our country, of course, in other places too, was an abrogation of authority by our elected yep. leaders who are entrusted with leadership powers. What they did was they abrogated their authority and their responsibility, they thought, by saying, okay, quote, whatever the CDC yeah. says is what we're going to do, unquote. And so uh, they have turned an advisory agency or agencies into being in charge, being the legal ruler, as if they, the le elected officials, are somehow doing their job by just saying whatever they say. I mean, this to me is sort of unprecedented. I don't know what you think about that. And, you know, that's certainly not defined uh, in the Constitution in terms of who has authority over uh, the public. Yeah, it's both unprecedented and dangerous. So let me talk about unprecedented first. Yeah, it, it's unprecedented. And, and one of the things that really goes to, Scott, is it shows um, how out of control the administrative state is. Um, and so here's an example of a case, a different case that NCLA had, New Civil Liberties Alliance. They brought a challenge to vaccine mandate. I think it may have been in the military or something down in Texas. And what the what the defendant said was, well, we're just relying on the CDC guidance. And so it's reasonable for us to rely on the CDC guidance. And so what NCLA said was, all right, well, we're going to challenge the CDC guidance then and say it's unreasonable. And the response is, well, you can't challenge the guidance because the guidance isn't binding on anyone. Uh, and so you can only bring legal actions against final actions, uh, challenges against final actions by agencies. And so something that's purely advisory, you can't challenge. And so they've managed to create the perfect shell game where you rely on some guidance, relying on the guidance is reasonable, but then you can't challenge the guidance because it's not anything official. And this is what they do all the time now. They do it in the banking system. This is the kind of, this is the stunt they're pulling with the Twitter files, right? Which is, we didn't tell them they had right. to censor it. We were just calling their attention to it, and they were relying on our expertise, right? And if that's the game, this is the this is the pandemic equivalent of it's catch a pandemic 22. equivalent it's of catch twenty two, and they're doing it there. They're doing it on debanking people. Uh, they're doing it uh, on Twitter. This is you know the way in which the administrative state has lost its leash, which is everybody knows the power of the government when they just suggest something. It's not just a suggestion. Right. And so and so right. So that that extent is unprecedented, which is they've managed how to how to gain the system so you can't challenge it. And even in the student loan example, they literally tried to redefine the program after they announced it simply to deny standing to somebody who wanted to challenge it. Um, and so this is, you know, really bad for the for the rule of law. But this idea of the this is a technical sort of a, a maneuvering of uh, what I would view as a, as a, again, as a layman, as a as sort of technical language to avoid even, I, I, I almost feel like it's the courts are avoiding making that's a right. decision by saying, well, you don't have standing because they have, or you can't challenge something that's right. a guideline and the circular sort of reasoning that there's never a need to actually right. rule on the on, That's on the right. Question. And then you're left with, with nothing. Right. And, um, the other, but right. the other thing I want to say with this respect to public health aspect is this is really dangerous, and this goes back a century. Um, 
Uh, the first case was this case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which upheld um, Massachusetts's um, uh, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts vaccine mandate against smallpox, right? Smallpox vaccine had been around for a century uh, at that point, and it was a nominal fine if you didn't do it. But um, in that, uh, um, what? Uh, but at the same time, literally three days after Jacobson was decided, the Supreme Court heard a case called Lochner versus New York, literally the same term of the Supreme Court. And Lochner versus New York was one of the great ringing defenses of individual liberties in, uh, uh, in, in, um, in American history. Um, and it was a case involving freedom of contract that people had. And if you read those two cases together, and they reference this in Lochner, is what it said was, yes, the state has power to deal with uh, public health issues in a, in a modulated way, but it's a very strong presumption of individual liberty as well that Lochner said, and those two things coexisted. What happened was in a horrible case in 1927 called Buck versus Bell, um, the, the challenge involved a, uh, a, 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 a Virginia law that provided for mandatory sterilization of people who are ju judged to be feeble-minded. Uh, and there was this poor huh. woman who was not feeble-minded at all. She was just a poor southern uh, rural girl who only had a sixth grade education. She was uh, raped by a very powerful uh, man, had a baby. She claimed that uh, she had been uh, raped, and he basically said she's crazy and had her committed. That's an over, uh, that's an oversimplification of the facts. While she was in oh, a my. mental institution, the, uh, um, they decided to sterilize her, forcibly sterilize her, because the consensus at the time, the public health consensus was eugenics. And the view was exactly the same view, which is this idea of externalities, right? That you, what your actions do affect the other people around you. And they said, we can't allow these people to just breed um, without, uh, without restriction. And so based on the public health consensus, they passed these laws uh, on eugenics and the Supreme Court upheld it uh, in Buck versus Bell. This is where right. Oliver Wendell Holmes had his famous line, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Um, and said that basically you can do this. Who are we to question the public health necessity of this? That then led, that was the basis for the forced internment of Japanese during World War II in the Korematsu case, where the Supreme Court said, who are we to question the national defense emergency that says we should just randomly round up, indiscriminately round up Japanese Americans and put them in concentration camps, right? That's the logic that lies okay. behind this idea that we're going to just defer to the public health authorities uh, mm. and that that courts are going to going to abdicate. And finally, beginning of the 1960s and 70s, the Supreme Court said, you know, we're going to create a right. We're going to recognize a right to bodily autonomy that basically we don't want to live in a world of Buck versus Bell and Korematsu. But what we saw during this pandemic was the courts went back, grabbed the hold of Jacobson, but forgot a Lochner, right? They forgot the importance of individual rights to balance that a legitimate police power of the uh, of the state. And the way things stand right now, they're basically back in the world of Buck versus Bell and Korematsu, which is we're not going to question the experts when it comes to these these emergencies. Right. It seems this uh, eerily uh, reminiscent, if not identical, to the logic certainly. Is just a question: Do they cite the Korematsu case as precedent for somehow 
being able to do these lockdowns or they're embarrassed or that's been overturned anyway. And no, those haven't actually been, been overturned. What they do is they go back to Jacobson, but they don't because Jacobson was squarely on point with respect to the, the public health aspect of it. But they don't recognize that Jacobson, without robust protection for individual liberty, leads you to Buck and Cormods. Um, and so what they've done is basically right. skipped over the intervening century of history where we tried doing it without protection for, uh, for, for individual liberties. And that's what I think is important to recognize here is you have to constrain these emergencies. Courts cannot go AWOL. Courts have to step up and right. protect individual liberties in these times of crisis. That's exactly when courts need to stand in the breaches to tamp down emergencies and make sure the government has a good reason for censorship, for closing churches, for forcing vaccines, for for doing all the terrible things that they did over the past three years. Yeah, for violating basically every civil liberty that we have as a guaranteed uh, citizen in the United States, freedom of assembly. Uh, you know, for, uh, we couldn't even get pe people were complaining to me, as you know, uh, you know, we, we you probably got uh, thousands of emails as well. Uh, but, you know, I had individual very heartbreaking stories of people saying they couldn't visit their dying elderly parent in the nursing home or in the hospital. They couldn't even remove their parent from the hospital. It was just a shocking violation of something that I, I think it certainly in our lifetimes is unprecedented in terms of very obvious freedoms that are constitutional. And again, here we have an overt violation, it seems, of our Constitution, of our Bill of Rights uh, during this pandemic. And somehow uh, we have a, a significant proportion of our American public that thinks it's okay, which is, of course, the most frightening aspect of all. I mean, this is very, it's, very, it's very, it is, it is very frightening. It is frightening and shocking the degree to which people just threw individual rights overboard, right? Threw individual liberties overboard, even including a lot of people who call themselves libertarians uh, uh, and, uh, and the like. I, but um, as soon as they felt threatened, um, they, they somehow rationalized uh, all of this. And it, it really did lead to some seriously morally debased sort of policies. Um, like you're saying, elderly people being isolated. Um, I had a friend, to your point, who could not, literally could not get his mother out of, uh, out of the hospital because they kept running PCR tests on her. Um, and, and they wouldn't discharge her until she had a negative PCR test, right? And she was like 92 years old. And she's like, get me out of here, right? Um, I feel better, yes. right? I, but now I feel miserable because I'm trapped in this hospital and just these really, you know, and what's really sick about it, Scott, and I, and I mean genuinely sick, is just the crude utilitarianism of, you know, somebody like Anthony Fauci, right? And so we talked about why did they not recognize natural immunity? He basically finally just admitted because it'd be too much bureaucratic trouble, right? It'd be too much trouble to keep track of this. And so right. it's easier for bureaucratic administration to just make everybody get it, damn the consequences, right? Who cares the fact that the evidence was clear that people already had recovered from COVID and yep. higher risk of adverse effects? It's just this crude utilitarianism and, that's really... And, 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 and overtly, I, 
I, I agree with you, but I would like to be even smarter. I think it's it's really unethical and yep. immoral to distort or uh, limit information by public health leaders to the public to sway yep. the public. Okay, this is this is a completely inappropriate use of public health and public health guidance. You don't limit information or deny facts or distort facts uh, to both inculcate fear, uh, but also simply to even sway opinion. The way opinion is swayed in a free country is you present the evidence, you present the data, uh, you allow debate, which of course uh, was not done. In fact, uh, that's something I really want to talk about here a little bit, which is, you know, uh, again, in my lifetime, and maybe I was a very naive person, I've never seen such overt uh, censorship, intimidation to achieve censorship. And of course, as you know, uh, there's a nuance and a different a sort of a gradation of how to achieve censorship. Oh. It's not just simply you're fired if you say it. Uh, you know, you can be marginalized, you can be harassed, you can have your reputation uh, damaged. Uh, and I, I'd like to talk a little bit about that because I think it's very complicated. Uh, you know, there's several things going on. There was censorship uh, in, in sort of a, 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 a private way. There was censorship on social media and the argument is, oh, it's a private company. But now we see, it certainly seems there was overt government involvement. Right. Uh, I'd like you to comment on what we're going to see in the courts, what we're seeing in the courts and, and uh, the state of things in a country that is founded on freedom of speech. Yeah, and when I worked at the Federal Trade Commission about 20 years ago, there were there was a lot of litigation at the time on what's called the commercial speech doctrine, which is under the First Amendment, people have a right to true information. You literally have the right to, to speak true information and to receive true information, which is what was basically being interfered with right here. I mean, ironically, a lot of the things the public health officials were saying when they were shilling for products and saying these things, those would have been illegal if private companies had <laughs> things that the government were saying on behalf of, say, vaccines and uh, in, in stuff like that. And so this really does press on First Amendment uh, uh, issues. But what you're seeing, Scott, again, is this in this world of the administrative state untamed by by uh, by the First Amendment and the Constitution and untamed by simple decency uh, of our public officials right. to to not be willing to give people information that could be relevant to improving, you know, to, that would be relevant to their health. Um, that's what's coming out in these Twitter cases, right? And um, which is, and right. like I said, this is kind of everywhere in the government, but this idea you know, in one hand, you're basically saying, well, we're just suggesting that they suppress this, uh, it's a public good. But then over here, they're rattling their saber and say, you know, Twitter, you look like you got a monopoly, right? Um, and so maybe we need to investigate you for antitrust, right? And over here, they're basically saying, well, you know, we could investigate you for your terms and conditions of services anytime we want to, right? When the law, all these things are intertwined. Um, and they made it very clear that they've, that behind the velvet uh, glove is always the mailed fist of some way the government um, can get you. You know, as uh, as Adam Smith once said, the uh, the measure of, of of liberty basically is how many laws you break simply by sitting still and doing nothing at all. Um, and now there's so many different ways that they can bring the power of the government to to bear on you. And we're seeing this 
is this the just trickles out one after another um in these these Twitter files, how the FBI was pushing on, how HHS was pushing on, how they were threatening them in, in public, how they I'm sure it's gonna come out they were threatening the advertisers to threaten them, uh, right? All these different sorts of uh activities that were being right. used by the it, government and also private actors. You know, I, I think it's something that uh, is also a little bit confusing about the whole even exposure of what was happening is it's not just under the current Biden administration. Uh, and it's not by necessarily the executive branch. I was I was there for three months in the White House during uh, August, September, October of 2020, which seemed like yeah. about 30 years. <laughs> exactly. I certainly... Aged, I aged about 30 years from it. I, I needed a, a new ID by the time I was finished because my hair had turned white. But, um, you know, the, the, the fact was that the agencies, uh, it wasn't necessarily at the top. It was these, my view, career uh, bureaucrats who were colluding with the social media and media, both leaking false stories to inflame the public and demonize and marginalize people like myself, but also, uh, you know, I was when I was advisor to the president, I posted on Twitter data about masks and it was pulled down a YouTube inter a, uh, an interview I had posted uh, from months earlier on risk to children and things that was just simply citation of data was pulled down uh, f by Facebook and YouTube. And so. When you uh, see that as the advisor to the president, I mean, I can't imagine a scenario where the American public should not hear what the advisor to the president right. is saying during an emergency. I think that is uh, the, 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 the sort of logic of that. I, I just still I can't get my head around why it's better to not have information. And I think we're seeing a backlash. I'm a, a backlash against it. I'm, I'm optimistic uh, but I'm still concerned, of course. And one of the reasons I'm concerned, by the way, is that, you know, when you have these political uh, House representatives investigations or congressional investigations, okay, they, they're always somewhat political. Uh, that's just how it works on either side. And secondly, even when they're completely well-intended, they're perceived right. as political. And so when you have a, an investigation that is perceived as political by half the American public, it's really been uh, sort of marginalized on its impact, which is a shame. It does not mean that the investigation doesn't have to be got done. It has to be done. But really, the, 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 the real backstop for all this stuff is not Congress yes. to me. The backstop is the Department of Justice, the courts. I mean, there is no doubt to me, you know, I've said this before, but, you know, Tocqueville said that the, the final resort in the American system against tyranny is the courts. Uh, and uh, I'm a little concerned, actually. I'm, I'm hoping that's true, but uh, I'm not sure. I'd like to hear your opinion on what the record of the courts has been during these uh, really uh, sort of overtaking, overturning of constitutional rights so far. And what do you think uh, we're seeing uh, in the future as we go along, because there's many systems, many, many cases are currently being uh, adjudicated. Yeah, and, uh, um, and, I, and I agree with you, right, which is that what we're talking about here is individual rights, right, the individual right to speak, to to worship, to provide true information. Um, as we were talking about before our interview started here, 
to think that the latest revelations are that they were suppressing demonstrably true information uh, because they thought it would create vaccine hesitancy. I mean, we're we're in right the latest Twitter Twitter download uh, where Stanford University actually was actively suppressing with government factually true it's, information. It's just it's just stunning to think this in that you know one of the leading supposed uh, lights of uh, of higher education um, is suppressing true information in furtherance of some political agenda is um, um, unfortunately I wish I could say it's surprising that's what's that's what's sad about it is that uh, that all these institutions sad. these these institutions just basically have thrown their credibility um, and their independence on the bonfire for short-term uh, political gains and um, and by and large, I think the courts have been MIA on this. Um, and uh, um, you know, there the there's been a few bright lights. I mean, obviously, um, Judge Vizel in Florida, who uh, struck down the illegal um, mask mandate for airplanes, right on the basis that it had no uh, reasonable basis um, uh, on the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, some courts have done some. Uh, the, ju- the judge in Louisiana, um, who has been stalwart in the Twitter case. Um, but, you know, but those are, you know, but it requires the, the higher courts to, you know, to allow discovery and depositions of Anthony Fauci and that sort of thing, I think was very important. But, um, and, you know, I, and there, but a lot of these judges just didn't do a good job. And I have to say, a lot of the judges appointed by George W. Bush were just as bad um, as the Obama and Clinton judges. Right. They were appointed because they would uphold the executive branch on the war on terror. And now they're upholding the executive branch on this, Right. Um, most of the the judges who have held the line, I have to say, are um, are, are are Trump judges, um, as it as it turns out. Um, and it's sad to think that that would be the kind of thing that determines whether our individual rights are violated. And thinking even sadder is that you know we wouldn't know any of this stuff about Twitter except for the complete accident that Elon Musk was forced to buy Twitter after he didn't want to. <laughs> right, right. We're we're a country that is a very. Uh frighteningly dependent on a few a very small number of billionaires and we happen to have a one of them who's Elon Musk, eccentric who cares about yeah, freedom because then we got the other billionaires bill gates who's like uh you know been one of the leading instigators of uh, of bad stuff and so thank god for elon musk or we wouldn't know any of this was uh was really going on but that I, is not a system that we want to base a free society on well, it's certainly uh, antithetical, really, to a free society when fundamental rights like that and impositions of the boot of government are are seemingly so simple, and they're now being justified by our courts. I mean, another one that I, I think is very important that people haven't paid attention to as much because it's not about really vaccines is this California yeah. law that says, okay, uh, the doctors can lose their license if they give, quote, COVID misinformation to patients. The COVID misinformation was given since spring of 2020 by doctors Fauci, Burks, uh, and all the governors who imposed lockdowns. That was misinformation. I'm not for them losing their medical license. I think the solution is simply allowing the information to be discussed, the free exchange of ideas, the airing of information uh, is the solution. And what the California law does is really it completely intimidates doctors and will 
I, I think the word chilling of speech uh, is is an understatement yeah. there. Can you imagine going to a doctor who's simply not going to tell you information because he's afraid? And I think we already saw that in the pandemic, by the way. But uh, what do you think about that kind of law and where do you see that going? That's actively being uh, yeah, in the courtroom Yeah, it's right terrifying. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the sanctity doctor-patient relationship. You know, I would just say, you know, my example, trying to get a vaccine mandate, right? I had, I consulted with a PhD immunologist who, who you know, taught at Brigham and Women's Hospital, taught at University of Penn Medical Center, had 60 publications, right? My expert witnesses were Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kuldorf saying about natural immunity is as good as, uh, you know, as good as, if not better, the vaccine. And my application for uh, for a uh, for an exemption was reviewed by literally the fire chief of the university who was in charge of our, our, our COVID mandate system. And then some random doctor, local doctor who I've never met before. Right. And you think about, is that the kind of medical right. system we want to have where we have bureaucrats setting what your doctor can tell you? Your doctor knows your entire medical history, who who has gotten to know you, who knows what you're comfortable with. Right. But they're not allowed to give you information about things that will affect your health, like in, in California, if it doesn't get the stamp of approval. Um, we're already seeing a lot of this. And every I mean, this, this court, exactly. and, you know, and this is being reinforced, Scott, by what I've observed. And as you said, I've gotten hundreds of emails from people who are in a similar boat as me is corporate medicine. Um, these large, big sort of corporate behemoth medical practices are basically run by, you know, the MBAs and the lawyers at this point. And so when the government right. comes to you and says, this is the established, you know, algorithmic paint by numbers protocol, it doesn't matter how many beautiful degrees you have, how smart you are. Basically what they say is this is what I'm required to, this is how I'm required to treat you because this is what the MBAs and the lawyers are telling me I have to do for you. What good is it to even have a doctor at that point? Just get, you know, chat GPT. Absolutely. And chat GPT will write your, uh, your mm -hmm. prescriptions for you, right? You know, honestly, I mean, I think people have no, uh, they're somehow dismissing the way, and every doctor should be against that kind of California law because I think, Every doctor who's who's even average, let alone good, understands that, you know, it's not just that medical science changes. It's there's not necessarily one right answer on things that you, the old phrase, medicine is an <laughs> art, is, is very right. true. Uh, and, you know, I just think this is really shocking. And the irony of all ironies is the lockdowners who did all these egregious things that were directly against both fundamental biology and the evidence at hand back in spring of 2020 and then since, often use as an excuse, oh, well, you know, yeah, maybe we were wrong about schools because science changed. It didn't change, but they're, they're saying science changes. So how could you possibly even have the concept of stopping people from punishing people for saying misinformation who is the judge of the misinformation? At what point in time is it misinformation? All of these things are so obvious they shouldn't even need be right. stated. Uh, but, you know, that is, of course, being uh, being debated right now in the courtroom. Okay, last couple of minutes I want to finish with this because I think you're, you're, you're very good at, at uh, showing as a personal example. You don't just say okay right. and cower even under a tremendous amount of attack, et cetera, 
and and frankly loss of uh, of reputation and all kinds of things that we've had how do we fix this what's your advice uh, really for people in the system who are younger particularly so that we can never let this happen again yeah it's uh, um it's hard scott and, and obviously you've um you've been a uh, um you were a real force of fortitude and inspiration for a lot of us to know that you were there fighting as well because i know that was um that uh, it must have seemed like 30 years um but uh, um you know and, and and partly what it is is i'll say scott look you know it's I, i'm i'm a tenured professor um and um and with you know with 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 so it's some degree of power comes some degree of responsibility right i was in a position i was in a position a lot of people weren't in which is i could stand up i could take the chance i had my my wife supported me completely on this she knew i was doing the right thing for the right reasons um and i think a lot of us um you know i mean it, it's cliche to talk about having some degree of privilege but i think those of us who have jobs like like you did and i commend you for for stepping up and serving the country but i think a lot of us do have to do more um if we've got the ability then then we're then it's incumbent on us i think to to, to carry our burden for the smaller person for the person who doesn't feel like they have a voice or can't express their voice or really are in a more vulnerable position and i think a lot of our people um especially academics are cowards um who exactly don't do the right, right thing whether it's on this whether it's on free speech whether it's on any other things that uh that, that we have we have we are given uh a independence and and uh to because we believe we'll exercise it in a responsible and courageous way and for those of us who are in that position we have to do what what we can do and i've been inspired by the number of ordinary people who have tried to fight back right um but they just don't they don't have the the the, the ability the talent that sort of thing but it really and i know you must have felt the same way it really as you said it was very touching it was very inspiring to get these messages from marines who were being discharged uh because you know they got COVID and they were getting kicked out anyway um and notes from people who were standing up and fighting for their job or asking how do i like try to get an exemption or how do i you know who are trying to get kids mask mandates from people who are just doing everything that they had in their power and it just took courage to stand up against this this machine um and in the end you know what preserves liberty and the rule of law is each one of us individually um we can't run and hide and hope That's somebody right. else is going to do it um at some point we have to think about what can i do what is what is my obligation to do um to preserve this prospect for for ourselves and for our kids uh, and for the, for the future um so that we don't have uh um what we've seen over the past few years next time this comes around yeah i i i i couldn't agree more you know you, you said it all there no matter what sort of documents and statements and official court cases and everything it, it really does boil down to individuals in a free society uh because uh with the free society you're not just given the opportunity to speak up you you're really required to speak right. up uh for these freedoms for the essential fundamental reason why people millions of people all over the world are willing to risk their lives to come to this country we, and without the united states uh if i may say the rest of the free world really crumbles we, we are a leader we must step up 
as individuals, and particularly in people with positions yeah, of and, power. You know, and that's what's one reason I brought my case, Scott, which is I could have just probably just filed a, a request for an exemption and might have gotten it, right? I had other medical issues that would have gotten it. But when I look out at the world, what I said was there were some cases being brought by some well-intentioned lawyers that were very poorly conceived, um, and they were resulting in very bad precedents. And I said, you know, I could get probably get through this unscathed, but there are more important principles at stake here, um, and I see what they are. And, and I said to myself, I'm the right plaintiff with the right case and the right attitude, right, which is I'm willing, I'm willing to, to fight this all the way to the end, right? And I am willing to... To raise hell, and I'm willing to go on TV and make a lot of noise. And I said, and 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 I'm, you know, willing to to go down swinging on this. And so, yeah, I reached out to Jay, I reached out to Martin, um, I reached out to the NCLA, and I said, this is the case, and this is the way we need to argue the case because I don't know if we're going to win or not, but if we're going to win, this would be an important principle, and this is the way the case has has to look. And so, I basically was doing it not just for me, but because I thought that. That I had, I, I saw something that I was the right person to do it and to try to to change uh, the law. And I don't know if I ended up changing the law because my case settled, but at least I feel like I helped to contribute to changing the public debate and inspired other inspired some people uh, and provided a template for future cases for people to uh, to to challenge similar sorts of issues. Right. Okay. Well, uh, with that, I think we'll end. Uh, this was Professor Todd Zawicki. Todd, thanks so much for doing this, for everything you've done, and particularly for having the spine, the tenacity to see this through, because I think, uh, you know, we all know it's very difficult, but the importance, uh, there's nothing more important, really, than uh, how we're trying to fix the country, restore the freedoms that we all value so much that the world depends upon for our kids and our future generations. We're doing the best we can. We need people like you. We have to stay tough and be fighters. So thanks again. Looking forward thanks, to Scott. next time. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to find out more about today's guest, Professor Todd Zwicky of George Mason University, Antonin Scalia School of Law, check out his website, at George Mason University. And don't forget to subscribe to our show on YouTube, Google, Spotify, Apple, and wherever you are listening to your podcast today. And I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.